Well, thank you so much for the invitation to come speak <clears throat> here this morning. I get a fair few of these nowadays, which is always a, a great delight. It is, of course, the occasion of World Earth Day, which was yesterday. I don't know if you marked it in any way, shape or form. World Earth Day has been around for about 50 years now, and it began uh, with um, an environmental catastrophe, an oil spill, which is something we've become fairly used to, unfortunately. And it's now celebrated in over 192 countries, marked with um, you know, celebration and marches and all the rest of it. I don't know if you've ever had an environmental epiphany. Uh, I've had a number over the years, but when I was about five or six, it was a trip to the Great Barrier Reef uh, with my family when we lived in Brisbane. So we hopped on the train and went up to there. And we, not being much of a swimmer, we went out to Green Island and there was this glass bottom pier. So we went down to the pier and allowed to see all the fishes swim about. And then a number of years later, I returned with my wife and attempted to go snorkeling uh, on the Low Isles, but uh, that didn't happen. But instead, we took a ride on a semi-submersible and again experienced the richness and the beauty of the Great Barrier Reef. And it's those kind of things that have inspired me over the years and helped me connect with the natural world. It's worth meditating on the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, we have one of the world's most unique natural treasures. It's one of the few features you can see from space. Here's some stats for you. Uh, fossil growth uh, began in that region, or growth of corals, over 600,000 years ago. And the most present phase of growth, uh, some 20,000 years ago, and the, the peak of the last ice age. There's about 3,000 individual reefs, and it extends about 2,300 kilometres. So it's, it's a huge feature. It's home to over 600 types of corals, 1,500 types of tropical fish, and 200 birds. But it's long been threatened. It's been threatened by pollution from agriculture, from uh, fishing, from mining, from shipping, and now we have climate change. And it could be gone in its entirety by mid-century. Um, trouble seeing my notes in the light. In, we've had just recently two years of coral bleaching due to extreme ocean temperatures, due to global warming, and two-thirds of the reef have been bleached. It was kind of interesting when one nation visited the reef and said, oh, it's in fine condition, they visited the most southern part, which had been mostly untouched by bleaching. We have a closing window to save the reef, and some scientists are saying that it's in terminal decline. At the same time, we have this odd uh, political situation, and I can say this quite safely because it's bipartisan, and so I'm not treading on... Well, I'm treading on everyone's toes, I suppose, to say that you have a state Labor government who thinks that a massive coal mine in Queensland is a good idea and a federal um, conservative government. And it runs against the wishes of environmentalists, of farmers and, of course, Australia's first peoples. The coal mine would be one of the world's largest and would produce 330 million tonnes of coal per year and about one and a half times our direct emissions per year over 4.6 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide over its lifetime, more than enough to see the end of the reef. So this morning in a church setting, it's an opportunity uh, after World Environment Day, or World Earth Day rather, to reflect this, not just on the beauty of natural creation, how we're threatening it, but to reflect in a doxological fashion, that is in the context of praise and worship of God, which is what Psalm 104 is. And you'll be happy to know I'm not going to take the usual evangelical approach of a verse-by-verse -verse preaching of it. We would be here for an awfully long time. I'm perfectly capable of that. I don't know if you are. But I'm going to take a thematic approach. And as a licensed Anglican lay preacher, I've got a three-point sermon. So you'll know where we're going, right? My first point is that God is perceived in creation. We can see something of God the Creator in that which God has made. If you want to follow, I'm going to be jumping about a little bit. But verse 24... 
O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. I once wrote a, a paper for an eco-theological journal, uh, which was entitled The Earth is Full of Your Creatures. Manifold is not a word that you come across much in common speech, but how many, how pluriform, how varied is your works, or are your works? Note the stress on divine wisdom in this. And we could spend a lot of time talking about creation versus evolution. We don't need to do that sort of thing. We can see God's wisdom in what he's made, regardless of the method which he took to make it. You can hear in this, I think, echoes of Genesis chapter 1, which is another great hymn, another great psalm, another great piece of prose of praise to God's manifold creations and his wisdom. Verse 20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and in the open expanse of the heavens. This language of, of plenty, of, of multitude, of blessing, of just uncountable numbers, which of course we're decimating as we go along. But um, when you watch a wildlife documentary or maybe go out to nature and you see swarms of fish or huge flocks of birds... In that you see the wisdom of God, the blessing of God, the way in which he enriches the natural world by creating lots and lots of things. Verse 22, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. It's the same language as the blessing that God gives to the man and the woman, isn't it? Be fruitful and multiply. That's not just a command to human beings, that's a command to everything. The earth is meant to be filled, not emptied. The earth is meant to be a testament to God's wisdom because it is filled with so many different creatures, so many different ways of being alive. And verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. So many different species, so many different families, so many different genus of creatures. Divine wisdom is shown in the biodiversity, to use the technical term of the earth, in the manifold of many works. There are some 8.7 million species on the planet, and we're counting more species all the time. 8.7 million ways of being alive, of living, eating, reproducing. 8.7 million ways of showing how wise, how clever God is. Atheist scientist JBS Haldane once said, somewhat tongue in cheek, I think, the Creator would appear as endowed with a passion for stars on the one hand and for beetles on the other, for the simple reason that there are nearly 300,000 species of beetle known. Now, you might not be into creepy crawlies. In fact, I'm looking straight forward and seeing the look of disgust on one person's face. My wife doesn't like beetles or bugs or any way, shape or form. If there's something to be removed from the house, it's my job to safely extract the insect. But I love beetles and I've got them stuffed or preserved and on boards and all around the house, much to my wife's disgust. But they're a testament. Even the creepiest, crawliest, most disgusting little thing is a testament to the wisdom and majesty of God. And yet scientists say now that we live in the sixth mass extinction. See, there's something known as the background rate of extinction, which simply says if I have a small little ecosystem, it might be a tiny island, and a volcano erupts, all those species go on that island. Unique forms of life. So that happens naturally in the providence of God. But now human beings are a major geological force. We fill the atmosphere with carbon dioxide and warm the planet. We acidify the oceans. We fill the earth, the soil, the atmosphere in the oceans with pollutants, some chemicals that the planet has never seen. It's forecast by 2050 there'll be more plastic in the ocean than there are fish. 
we pollute, we hunt, we clear the land. And I suggest to you that this is a blasphemy. If the manifold nature of the creation is a testament to the divine wisdom and purposes of God, to remove that intentionally or accidentally by our own stupidity or our own hubris is an act of blasphemy. We can say that as Christians. And as I've been alluding to, the actual sheer abundance of things is a mark of divine wisdom. The whole earth is full of your creatures. And not just that there are many, many, many different species, but that if left alone, those species proliferate. Let me give you an example. Something known as the passenger pigeon. I don't know if you've ever heard of the passenger pigeon, because there aren't any more. Uh, John James Orbidon is a famous name in the United States in birding circles. In 1813, he wrote the following. The air was literally filled with pigeons. And I know what we think of pigeons these days, but clear your mind of that vision and think of what a passenger pigeon might be like. The light of noonday was obscured as by an eclipse. Here's the disgusting bit. The dung fell in spots not unlike melting flakes of snow. And the continued buzz of wings had a tendency to lull my senses to repose. In other words, it put him to sleep. Before sunset, I reached Louisville, distant from Hardensburg by 55 miles. The pigeons were still passing in undiminished numbers and continued to do so for three days in succession. Can you imagine it? A flock that takes three days to pass overhead. The sheer abundance of birds. No, I'm not really fussed whether or not you like pigeons or not. Three days of something that God has made to pass over the sky. So what did the Americans do? They shot them. And not because they ate them, but because they liked to shoot guns. Severe hunting between 1870 and 1890, that's 20 years, it's only 20 years, right? Meant that they were extinct in the wild by 1900. And I have on my bookshelf a book that I haven't read yet, like most of my bookshelf, and it's about Martha. And Martha was the very last passenger pigeon. She died, a lonely little bird, in 1914. How tragic. How very, very sad. How sad is still if we can't extend some kind of empathy to this last little bird, the last of her kind. And this is a story that's repeated over and over again. So the sheer number of species and the sheer number of actual living creatures, the biomass on the planet, is a testament, a mark to divine wisdom. And I speak now as a scientist that science doesn't have to oppose this revealed wisdom. I know scientists do that a lot. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, names you may or may not have heard of, who want to use science particularly evolutionary uh, science, as a battering ram to smack us over the head and say, this is all an accident, your life is meaningless and there is no God, so relax. But hear the words of Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project. I am privileged to be somebody who tries to understand nature using the tools of science. But it is also clear that there are some really important questions that science cannot answer, such as, why is there something instead of nothing? Why are we here? In those domains, I've found that faith provides a better path to answers. Science and faith can actually be mutually enriching and complementary once their proper domains are understood and respected. And I stress that often when I speak because I'm really, really tired of Christians who seem to think that you've got faith on one hand and science on the other and the two views can't be reconciled. That's been 30 years of my life trying to do that in my own mind. And there are many Christians, as Francis Collins there, the former head of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I met at an education conference 
Sir Robert Horton, Sir John Horton, sorry. He plays the organ at his church. And maybe you've heard of Catherine Hayhoe, who's a climate scientist in the United States. Her husband's a pastor. She managed to convert him to believing in climate change, which is a great thing. Science helps us understand the state of our planet. It helps open up a broader picture and a deeper picture of the things I've been talking about, about biodiversity and so on. And science is currently under attack for ideological reasons. So I'm very pleased that yesterday many people marched for science, even when I couldn't. I want to finish off this theme by reflecting on verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. There's a call for God to glory in the, in the creation that he's made and for us to join in that. And I think what's happening here, as you often see in Hebrew literature, is a, a Hebrew parallelism. That's a fancy way of saying he's, the, the psalmist says one thing, he says it another way. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. In other words, part of God's glory is not just his invisible nature, but it's also reflected in the things that he has made. If you want to see the glory of the Lord, take a look around you. Now turn around. Look at the person next to you or behind you. There's the image of God. So there's the glory of the Lord. But go outside. We can even look at the windows now. And there's trees out there. There's the glory of the Lord in the works that he has made. <laughs> So don't think that God's glory is confined to church on a Sunday morning or in your prayers or in your Bible reading alone when God's glory is everywhere to be seen with the eyes of faith, the spectacles of faith, as it were. And here's two different thinkers from from different perspectives who identified this. Firstly, John Calvin in his Institutes. Wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. John Calvin. He also described nature like a mirror, reflecting God's glory. You know, when you look in a mirror and it reflects your own appearance, you look in the non-human creation and you see a reflection of God's glory. Some thinkers worry then that perhaps that means that that's the only thing creation can do. And it's, it's, you, know, you can so stress that picture that creation virtually disappears and all you can see is God. Well, Bonaventure had another view of that, and he describes um, nature, the non-human creation, as a stained glass window. In other words, you can study it and marvel in it and the mechanisms and the variety and so on, but you can only truly appreciate its beauty if you see the sunshine shine through a stained glass window. And that sunshine, in the case of the rest of creation, of course, is the glory of God the Creator. So it's worth to hold those two pictures in tension with each other. So God is perceived in his creation. He's also perceived in his care for all his creatures. And this is the view that says that the natural world is not simply a resource for us to use. Verses 16 to 18 in the passage then. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. Yeah, this vision of creation being like a garden that God tends. That should bring back some imagery from Genesis Two. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has its home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the conies or the rabbits. The psalm is full of all this imagery about water. It's no great surprise given how arid the Middle East is, but we should you know, kind of um, resonate with that because Australia is one of the driest continents on the planet. 
I read a, a, an excellent PhD thesis in theology that talked about the Murray-Darling river system from a theological point of view, an ecotheological point of view. The river system is allocated, uh, over-allocated, I'm sorry. There's not enough water flowing through the system for people downstream to meet all the needs of irrigation upstream and for the natural world. We're just too greedy. We're doing too many things that the earth cannot sustain in a dry continent. Too much irrigation, um, too much mismanagement, because there's not one national authority that takes charge and states argue with each other, all the while, while the system suffers, both the human economic system and also the ecological system. And climate change is only making it worse as our continent becomes drier and drier. Climate change denies both people and agriculture. And you can read in verses 14 to 15 how God cares for the natural world. And then you get this tiny little bit that talks about human agricultural systems. So human water use is just but one part of the way in which God cares for his creation. Notice too that the storks find their home in the fir trees. Trees are not just timber. The trees of the field clap their hands as we go out and enjoy They praise God in their own way. They provide homes for non-human creatures. Yes, they're a resource that we can use. Nothing I'm saying this morning says that human beings, we become hippies and we live off the land and go back to the caves or whatever or live in the trees kind of thing. Let's not reject the benefits of modern society, etc. But simply to hold in tension our use of the creation with the fact that God has given the natural world to other creatures as well. And so the insane laws that we have in Australia that allow for rampant land clearing in New South Wales and Queensland do nobody any good. And of course the high mountains are for the wild goats. I know people climb mountains because they're there, quote unquote, but they're not just there for us to climb. One of the things we need to uh, be careful of, though, when we, we read the Psalms and we start to think about creation and the wonderful feelings that it can induce and maybe the sort that buy those calendars and you've got the wonderful uh, pictures of the natural world and the sappy verse and uh, this kind of sentimental type view, uh, is identified in an essay by J.B. McKinnon called A False Ideal. And he writes, There is a serious problem with our idea of sacred nature. If we experience the natural world as a place of succor and comfort, it is in large part because we have made it so. For decades, there were almost no wolves, grizzly bears, or even bald eagles in the lower 48 states. So he's talking about the United States. There used to be wolves and bears in the forests in the United Kingdom. They went centuries ago. We like nature when we feel it is safe, when it's warm and it's cuddling. Of course, as Australians, we're kind of used to the idea that, that the bush is not safe. We have snakes. We don't have um, large cats or anything like that, but we have snakes and the oceans have sharks. But by goodness, do we react in times of tragedy. So a young girl was taken very tragically just recently recently and attacked. But then what's the response? Oh, we must cull the sharks. When we play in their domain, which we think naturally belongs to us, our response is kill, kill, kill. So McKinnon warns about a naive idea of sacred nature, but that's not the biblical view. We can not brush aside his his criticism, but take it seriously. Let me read to you verses 20 and 21 of the psalm. You make darkness and it is night. 
when all the animals of the forest come creeping out. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. And we know what their food is. It's other animals. Nature's not tame. That's what domesticated animals are. Sometimes it's dangerous, bloody, violent, but it's provided for by God. And so we're still meant to see the glory, the wisdom, the benefits of God's provision for the non-human creation in predation, in parasitism, in things that previous generations like uh, John Wesley in a sermon struggled over. So our praise can't be squeamish. Neither should it be voyeurish, of course. Um, I'm a huge David Attenborough fan and I've watched pretty much everything he's ever produced. And that includes documentaries like The Hunt, which I've got at home. I haven't watched it yet because I can't watch it in front of my wife, Jo, because she doesn't like that side of creation. We're constantly having that discussion about, well, it's simply part of the created order. You can't dismiss that as a product of the fall or anything like that. It's simply the way in which God provides uh, for non-human creatures. And we don't, you know, there's a certain sense of tension when we watch that kind of thing. We don't celebrate the death of another animal, but it's provision for yet another living creature. And the psalmist is not naive in this respect. Verses 26 to 27, to now focus on the oceans. Yonder is the sea, great and wide. Creeping things innumerable are there, living things both small and great. Like the Great Barrier Reef. There go the ships and Leviathan, which is a sea monster that you formed to sport in. And it's worth reflecting upon. I mean, I don't know if you go down to the, the sea and you watch the crashing waves and think how, for a moment, gee, I'm glad I'm not swimming out there when there's a huge swell or large seas. For the ancients, the ancient Near East, the oceans represented chaos, the forces of destruction, of uncreation. They genuinely believed you know, there'd be sea monsters, you know, the thing that you'd put on old, old um, maps of the ocean. So from the power of the waves to the savagery of the shark, it reminds us how tiny we are, how small we are. I visited a church in Wagga just recently and I was out on a sheep property and I could see the Milky Way. I haven't seen the Milky Way in years. There are plenty of psalms that testify to the fact that that tells us about how small and seemingly insignificant we are, except in the eyes and the love of God. So I think it's important to set ourselves in that broader context. And all creatures, be they beautiful or ugly, great or small, tame or savage, have their place and are our guides to praise God. Even redbacks, brown snakes and sharks. And we learn more of God and the things that we should rightly fear. And so I say to you, go and bushwalk. Go into the rainforest, go into the ocean, go and swim in the reef before it's gone. But tread in the cathedral of creation with care. Finally, my third point is that God is perceived in the moral fabric of reality. It's kind of curious in a sense that Psalm 104 speaks so much about the creation. It's paired with Psalm 103 because it finishes with the following. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. It's kind of a curious way to end a psalm he thinks about, about creation. Let's go back a little bit in the psalm. I know I'm jumping about, but you get the idea. We're picking out themes to verses 6 through 9. You covered it, that is the earth, with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over. 
so that they will not return to cover the earth. There's language here that picks up on two sections of the Old Testament. Firstly, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 8. So if you read the Genesis account with an ancient eye, it's the whole idea of the setting up of order in creation. It's not primarily focused on the material origins. I could give you a talk about the modern, um, modern theories about how planets form, if you really like. But I'm not going to. But the, the ancient peoples were interested in function and form and relationship. You know, what's the earth for? Why am I here? What am I for? Which God created it rather than does you know, creation give evidence for God? Those kind of things. And so you read in Genesis chapter 1 about the ocean, the waters above being separated from the waters below by a solid firmament. So it's clearly not scientific. And the waters being separated from the dry land so that you could have fish in the oceans and animals creeping on the ground and so on and setting up that order. And then human beings come along and stuff things up. And what's the flood? But an undoing of that order. The waters bubble up and the land is covered and the the solid firmament is broken and the waters come from above and everything is chaos again. Disorder. The forces of chaos are released by human sinfulness. And so it's appropriate in a sense that verses 6 through 9 give you echoes of the flood and the psalm finishes with let sinners be consumed from the earth. Because sin unleashes moral confusion, it unleashes chaos in the non-human creation. And that's what we're seeing right now. And it's, it's worth noting too, although we won't dig into this in any great depth, but if you read Romans chapter 1, the primary problem is not sin. Sin is a consequence of idolatry. You aren't simply what you eat, you are what you worship. And so when human beings worship consumption, comfort, consumerism, as we do, and there are people gathered, not in church on a Sunday morning, but in shopping malls, then we release chaos into the world. Because what fuels modern consumption, what fuels our economy, not a renewable economy, not a circular economy, not a donut economy, but one that's just extract use quickly and then throw away that fuels the disruption of creation we have upset the order the moral order thankfully in the lord jesus christ that moral rent or the rent in the moral fabric is being repaired god god demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners christ died for us but let's as a church stop thinking that that just refers to person x's problem with pornography or somebody's gambling problem, or all the sorts of things that Christians focus on is very narrow. When was the last time you heard a certain sermon on gluttony? Isn't gluttony a problem with the overconsumption of food in the world that I have more than enough to become obese if I so chose where people are starving? That our tiny little sins are magnified through a huge system of consumption to have an impact on the non-human world. And so Paul, in the same book that says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we're sinners, Christ died for us, also says the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to decay, using language of the exodus, the language of release, just as he does talking about human beings. I don't know if any of you read Laudato Si. I had to read it as an eco-theologian, and of course it was written by the Pope, so I had to read it, right? People asked the Pope what he thought about what the Pope said. 
But one of the, the, the groundbreaking things about that, or well, one of the many thing, groundbreaking things about that, is he quoted other bishops, but also people from outside Catholicism. Patriarch Bartholomew. I'm going to give him the semi-last words. For human beings to destroy the biological diversity of God's creation, for human beings to degrade the integrity of the earth by causing changes in its climate, by stripping the earth of its natural forests or destroying its wetlands, for human beings to contaminate the earth's water, its land, its air and its life, these are sins. This Earth Day weekend, we must recognise that God's wisdom and God's glory are perceived in what he has made. This is the message from the psalm. God calls us to worship him in the midst of his creation by enjoying all that he's made. So go out this afternoon and enjoy it. By wondering at it. Pop on a David Attenborough documentary. And by working to undo the damage we have done while we wait for him to renew all things. It's not a call to put up our feet and wait for him to fix it up. We as the church joining God's mission in the world and that is to bring the message of salvation to all human beings and bring the message of release from slavery to decay to all creatures. Amen.